0: Turn with me back to our text in Luke chapter 14. I want us to take the next two weeks to think in this text of Luke 14. This week we're going to digest the theme. What's the heart of this paragraph? Next week, I want us to take the illustration that Jesus uses to establish the theme and and explore that a little bit and see how it applies to us. But the theme of the text emerges because three times Jesus says in the text something that sounds a bit harsh to us You cannot be my disciple. Generally, we like thinking of invitations, like whosoever will may come and take of the water of life freely. And those invitations are there. They're in the Old Testament as again and again God calls people to return to him in faith. But surprisingly, there are many times in the gospel accounts where it seems as if Jesus is trying to turn away people. But the reality is, he's he's laying out so starkly the truth that there will be no misconception about why they are following Jesus. You see, the text begins there in verse 25 with great crowds accompanying him. A lot of people are intrigued by this Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the prophet or Jesus, the self-proclaimed Messiah. And we know from studying all the Gospels that a whole lot of people thought that maybe this could be a great rescuer. Maybe he's going to overthrow Rome. So the crowds came, and Jesus just wasn't in this for popularity. There were times early in Mark, Jesus has just done a lot of his first healings, and miracles and then he disappears and and Peter and the disciples are looking all over Peter finally finds Jesus and he says we got to go back all these people are waiting for you and Jesus says no we have to move on to the next place he just wasn't interested in making a name or gathering a crowd what he was interested in was people who truly understood That sin will ruin them, and they need to be rescued by Jesus. And so the size of the crowd really didn't matter. Jesus would gladly thin the crowd if it was truth that was doing the thinning. And so three times in this text you heard him lay out a condition to be met. And if that condition is not met... Then you cannot be a disciple. You cannot be a follower of Jesus. Now, let me try to clear something up from the start here. When we talk about discipleship, we're not talking about the upper class of Christians. You see, I think at times when we when we study discipleship in the gospels, we think we're Christians. We're all believers in jesus christ we've repented of sin we're trusting in jesus for salvation and then if we really grow in our spiritual life and want to be some kind of zealot some kind of missionary or the next charles spurgeon if you're really going to be serious about this you become a disciple of jesus that's not the language of the bible we have to understand that being a disciple would be what we think of in our minds as being a Christian. Jesus here is defining what a Christian truly is. And the bar, as we see, is incredibly high. At least incredibly demanding In these conditions that Jesus gives for being a disciple, we understand that following Christ is not a casual matter. It's not a hobby. It is not risk-free participation. Following Christ comes with a cost. Now, what I am not saying is that If you meet these conditions, you become the next Spurgeon or a missionary or do something that we think of as radical or extreme. The radical and extreme nature starts in the heart because what Jesus is going to define for us is not vocational ministry. Oh, now you're really a disciple. No, it's a heart that now is really infatuated in the truest sense. With Jesus, so that nothing else encroaches on our obedience, on our worship. Following Christ comes with a cost. So what is the cost of following Jesus? That's what Jesus is laying out for the multitude of people that are following. And some of them would be turned away. That's not what they were looking for. They were hoping for something a little more immediate, a little more temporal, something to relieve their circumstances. Israel as a nation is a pit. It's a a miserable place to live under Roman domination. What they really wanted was something that would feel good right now, a little better status in life. If only we could be free from Rome. If only we could have a better economy and less taxation. If only, if only, if only. And it was all this stuff that surrounded the here and now. Jesus isn't promising that any of that will change. But he is promising the peace and the hope and the joy and the purpose that would rise above and cut through all of that stuff so that people could say life was really worth living. And ironically, the life that is worth living is a costly life. What is the cost of following Christ? Jesus' answer is clear. Self-denial. Self-denial. We must deny ourselves. In parallel passages where the same teaching unfolds, In kind of the the, the eyewitness of a different writer, we even find that word, let a man deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. We probably know it best from Paul's letter to the Romans, where he draws on the Old Testament sacrifice picture. Big stone altar, an animal with its throat cut, bled out, that animal put on the burning altar and it was consumed as a burnt offering. Based on that understanding in the minds of the hearers, Paul says, I urge you brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, that wasn't the norm. Clearly, we've moved from the illustration to the meaning because we don't, die like the animal sacrifice did. We're alive. We are a perpetual sacrifice. But the point of the sacrifice in Romans 12 is that we are dead to self. We're dead to the control of our lives. We've given that over to someone else. Self-denial is possible because of Christ's affirmation. If I see Jesus before me saying, come, take up your cross and follow me, when I see who that is and I believe it, it makes the denying self much more possible. When I'm affirming Christ as Savior and Lord, self-denial doesn't sound so bad. It becomes, Romans 12, that act of worship. I'll, I'll gladly give up anything that I love, anything that I want, anything that I have, For this one, who would do this for me? And so when we honor Jesus as Lord, which is what Jesus wanted of this crowd, self-denial is what it looks like. Well, the text unfolds a description of this self-denial. Three times, Jesus is going to give a condition to define self-denial, and he says, if you don't meet that condition, You cannot be my disciple, but let's think practically. He's saying if you don't meet these conditions, you are not a Christian. You might meet other conditions that you've established for what a Christian is. You're generous and you care for people or you come to church or you believe certain things, but Jesus wants more than your checklist. He has his own. And he says, this gets to the heart of the matter Now, understand, none of of us is probably going to leave here today saying, oh, I I do all of those things perfectly. So we're not saying the standard is perfection. We're, We're keenly aware, based on just the last week, that we are a work in progress, that God is in the process of completing His work in us by His Holy Spirit. And that probably, that certainly is not going to be complete until the day Christ appears. So what we're not saying this morning is that you have to perfectly do these things. But as they generally come from the mouth of Christ in short, concise, general conditions, are you generally meeting those conditions? If you are, rest assured and feel the weight of Scripture affirming your profession of faith as a believer in Jesus. Today, the Holy Spirit should have great freedom, Romans 8, to to confirm to you that you are a child of God. Not because you say, better than anyone else, I perfectly love God as I should. But something in you will say, you know what? I do love Christ. And I hate it when I don't love him as I should. And as imperfect as that is, that meets the conditions of the text. So the text is weighty, it demands much, but the reality is the gracious nature of God's truth here is such that it really is, with the help of the Spirit, easy to find hope. That yes, I'm a child of God, and if there's any conviction to be had, it's to, it's to focus a little bit more intently on how I can live my life with the purpose of kingdom advancement ultimately the glory of God. So how does the text unfold self-denial? Look, verse, look first at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How do we make sense of this? family hating, this self-loathing. What is Jesus saying here? Some of you worked hard this week to not be hateful to your spouse, to your parents, to your sibling, that little sibling that you were tempted to call a brat, right? And maybe you did. What is Jesus saying here when he's speaking of, in such strong language of hating these relationships and even ourselves? Well, I think he's unfolding, number one, that self-denial means this. Everything I love must be submitted to loving Christ. Everything I love must be submitted to loving Christ because we know from so many commands of Scripture that we are not to be hateful, unkind people. Specific commands given to how to treat parents, parents, children, how to treat one another, governed ultimately by that second great command. First one, love God with all your heart. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? And he gives us a story, anyone you encounter. Jesus is not saying we should be unkind or, as we think of, hateful to our family members. So what is he saying? Jesus is using what we what we might call in our modern writing hyperbole, which would be defined as a strong overstatement of sorts to make a point. And the point is this that our love for Jesus should be so primary, so focused, so all-consuming That any other loves, right as they are, cannot compare to that primary love, so much so that it almost looks like we don't care. Some of you love watching the Chiefs play. And your love for that play and the replay and analyzing whether it was a right call or not drowns out all the other things around you that you say you love. Your wife could be talking to you and you don't hear it, right? Because there is a singular, all-consuming focus. The point of the text here is not that loving those other things is wrong. It's not a contradiction with the scriptures. One verse saying, hate your parents, the other one, love, honor, and obey them. No, no contradiction. It's the use of of this expression, this love-hate comparison, that this love is so all-consuming that it just makes the other things kind of fall away. They become very much secondary. We might say it this way. Yes, love your parents, love your spouse, love your siblings. But it is a distant second to the first love of loving Christ. If anyone doesn't love Christ more than he loves any of those other relationships or even himself, he is not a disciple. He is not a follower. He is not a Christian. The Christian, at some level, has come to understand and practice a love for Christ that is greater than any other loves. If you come from a family that we would call Broken, perhaps through divorce or something, or maybe even because there are some in the family that are believers and some that are unbelievers. You understand something a little bit more than those of us that were raised in a home with believing parents and, you know, believing grandparents and uncles and aunts and kind of everyone in the family was a Christian. Here you're beginning to understand that the love for Christ must be greater than any other love that you have. In Matthew 6, Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters. But then he abandons the word serve and he moves on to love hate. For either he will love the one and hate the other, or else he will cling to the one and despise the other. So he moves from the idea of serving two masters and he gets to the motivation behind it, the loving of them. We, we could love so much family and relationships that we give ourselves first and foremost to that and, and we have no place, no, no evidence, nothing to offer that says we are loving Christ more than we are loving the good things he's given us everything I love must be submitted to loving Christ. When this love is out of balance, we usually feel it in the moment of loss. When when loss is threatened or real, you lose that relationship, or the health or something threatens to take that away, suddenly it feels like something's not right. My world's falling apart when... Emotionally, we can understand that, but there should be this anchor holding us completely steady because my supreme love is my God. And if he chooses to give or to take away, that shouldn't threaten the stability. If God in his providence were to ask you to surrender your spouse or your children Does life still have incredible purpose and joy? It must. That's the definition of the Christian life. Everything I love submitted to loving Christ. So we start taking inventory. What do I love in this life? You may love your work, your family, your marriage, your children, your grandchildren. You may love friendships. You may love your property, your homestead. Good. Do that and be thankful for it. Just keep all of those loves a distant second to your love for Christ. So that if you were to suffer like Job and have all of those things one at a time taken away, you are still left with the core of why you exist. To love and enjoy God forever. These are all blessings from the Lord, but we must keep them in their place. Don't let your craving for those things define your life or your joy. I was talking to Ron Weber on the phone Friday. They'll be passing through town in early October. They won't be able to be with us on a Sunday. But he was saying how much they miss their grandkids here in Kansas City. And and some of you have grandkids elsewhere. You know that longing, FaceTime just isn't enough. But then he he immediately echoed that with the affirmation that they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. He's equipped with these languages. He needs to be doing this translation work for the sake of the gospel. And so lost time with grandchildren, not seeing them grow up. In his melancholy words, he says, I cry every time I see him on video. but if loving grandkids doesn't look like hate compared to the kingdom of God, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. So hallelujah for partners like this in ministry who understand this life is designed with all kinds of glorious treasures to enjoy and love. But our ultimate love must be the giver of all those good gifts. Everything I love submitted to loving Christ. But Jesus adds to the definition of self-denial. Second, it means everything I live for must be sacrificed to living for Christ. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Please understand that this language of taking up a cross is not, I've got a bum knee from a high school injury and I just have to limp the rest of my life, all right? The language of taking up the cross is the language of death. You know the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. What happened? He goes through the court process. He's sentenced to execution on a cross. And as a convicted criminal, he was asked to bear his cross, or at least part of it, to the place of execution. That was the common practice. At times, Rome would crucify innocent people as a statement of their power. They knew these feast days were coming up, and they would gather up some people, and they'd crucify them on the streets leading up to Jerusalem. So that if you were coming to the Passover... You can talk Messiah and deliverance as much as you want. Just remember, Rome is in charge. So when they saw a man carrying his cross or his cross beam, they knew he wasn't coming back. They knew his life was over. In our criminal justice system, we call it a dead man walking. He's as good as dead. His life is completely in the control of someone else from this moment on. He'll not make any decisions. He'll not say, this is too hard, or I don't want to do this. He won't turn back. It's not up to him. His life, as he controls it, is over. So when Jesus says that we need to take up our cross, he wants us to be thinking Self-denial. This is the ultimate abandonment of all control of our own lives. We are now completely in the hands of another authority. We don't call the shots. We don't make any decisions. We're dead to ourselves. We only do the will of the one who's in charge. Yes, Paul urged the church to present ourselves this living sacrifice but he did it himself. In Philippians 1 he said for me to live is defined this way Christ. For to me to live is Christ. So much so that death and he talks much of death and is many times he was near death, he said that would only be gain. Cuz at least then I hit the weekend. The work is over. At least then there's just the rest and the full enjoyment. Until then, everything I do must come under the umbrella of it's for Christ. Everything I live for must be sacrificed to living for Christ. Again, this doesn't mean I give up my job and I have to go into ministry. Because that's not anywhere in the scriptures what Jesus calls Christians to do. Do what he's asked you to do. But everything you live for, make sure it's on the altar. And if God blesses you like a host of patriarchs in the Old Testament with a great job and a great income and lots of money and what looks to be a life of comfort and ease, there is no problem with that if it's all surrendered to Christ. So that he could say, enough of that, let's turn the page and do something else, and you're ready to go. The problem is we have things that we think we can't walk away from. And that's what Jesus is saying because when a man was asked to carry his cross, Rome didn't care if he wanted to say goodbye to someone, if he had a business to wrap up, if he had to do anything else. No, walk. And when Jesus says you take up your cross, we immediately have to be asking ourselves, is there anything that I would balk at? Would I say, but I have to do, or there's this, or what about? Many missionaries said no to kingdom advancement on the foreign field because they thought their kids might not be safe. Well, how safe are kids with parents who are ready to defy what God wants them to do? That sounds like a dangerous place to grow up to me. Jesus' point is, you... You you can't be a Christian. You don't understand what you're saying about the Christian life if you're not willing to walk away from everything in order to live for Christ. Here, Jesus defines self-denial in the language of death. We have to ask ourselves some hard questions like, where do I even see self-denial in my life? And I'm not talking about, I passed on a cupcake and ate a salad. (laughs) There may be some virtue in that kind of self-control. But in serious spiritual choices, where do I ever deny myself? Is this perhaps the root of the marital conflict that we often experience as seasoned Christians and seasoned married people? We've never learned self-denial Does any of my self-denial measure up to the language of taking up a cross and dying? I think it could. I think, husbands, if we'd start dying to selves, our wives might notice it. They might get a better picture of Christ who gave himself for his church. What does self-denial look like for you? It may be there. I'm not saying it's not. But let's wrestle with this. Is everything that I live for submitted to living for Christ? Well, then Jesus continues with a third explanation of self-denial. We're skipping over some of the illustrations he gives there to make his point. Lord willing, visit those next week. But in verse 33, we have another explanation of what it means to deny ourselves. And there Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. This word renounce could mean something as simple as saying goodbye, leaving that and going on to something else. But it also has the the word picture of setting something aside. So imagine you have your hands full of all the plastic toy junk from Walmart, right? You have all these, your hands are full of plastic toys and stuff. And I tell you, listen, I, I, I've got this gold bar from Fort Knox that I'd, I'd love for you to have you, you, here. You understand the foolishness of somebody with a couple of bags of Walmart junk saying, sorry, I, I don't have a free hand. That's the idea of this word, renounce all. We make space because we immediately realize how important something is. I'll set something aside in order to have a free hand to take that. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This could could lead us down an inaccurate application that we've already talked about. If you have stuff, you need to give it away. You shouldn't have that stuff. You, You need to use it for the kingdom. You're supposed to give it all away. You're not supposed to give it all away. You're supposed to give away what God tells you to give away. You're supposed to be generous, a cheerful giver. So it's not saying walk away from everything you have. You you don't walk away from your family. You don't stop providing for them because you're going to do some kingdom thing. No, clearly there's boundaries here of, of spiritual common sense. But Jesus really isn't talking about the application and what it actually looks like. He's addressing first and foremost the heart. In your heart, are you holding on to things so tightly that you do not have room to grasp the treasure of Christ. Because number three, self-denial means that everything I have must be surrendered to gaining Christ. I don't gain Christ. I'm not a Christian if my hands are full of all the stuff that I love. I must have a spirit of renouncing that, willing to set anything aside in order to gain more of Christ. Paul said that he would count every resume-building virtue as waste, as loss, as completely worthless if he could instead of boasting on everything he had done, everything he had accomplished, his lineage, if instead he could just know Christ a little bit better. A few weeks ago, I sent you that video clip of Johnny Erickson Tata, who now for over 50 years has been anchored in her faith that that wheelchair and being a quadriplegic has led her to knowing Christ. Would we give up our mobility for a life of quadriplegia, if it meant knowing Christ? I understand. It's an impossible question to answer. God's not asking us to sign up for something like that. But it helps us wrestle with the things that we hold dearly, that we think we must have. And if God let us keep everything we think we need, it might mean he would have to say, but you won't know me. And God won't say that. God will not let your misguided notion of what's good for you keep him from making himself known to you as his child. So it's imperative that we take everything we have and we surrender it to gaining Christ. Will the suffering of this coming week help me to know my God better than You embrace the suffering. Will the weakness of this week help me to see the power of God? Then I will gladly glory in my infirmities so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. The alternative is I will shun hardship, I will shun sorrow, I will shun infirmity, and the power of God will not rest upon me. Those are the options that unfold in the text. You either live this way or you don't. But in both cases, you cannot call yourself a Christian. Only in one. Everything I have must be surrendered to gaining Christ. What do you need to set aside this week? J- just this week. Maybe the Spirit would lead in life-changing decisions, but I'm just thinking Tuesday morning scheduled decisions. What do you need to set aside to gain more of Christ? Christ. Can we be done with the excuse, I don't have time to read my Bible? And recognize that might just be a declaration of I'm not a Christian. Because Jesus says, if you don't have time for that, if you don't have time to gain more of Christ, what do you have time for? Well then, by all means, live for that. Or like Joshua of old, if you want to serve the gods of the Canaanites, do it. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We know who he is. We know the treasure that he is. And he's worth living for. He's worth gaining more of. So don't believe the lies of the devil and and start parroting them. Instead, take everything that you have and yield it to the thought of gaining Christ. So I'll set this aside. I'll set that aside. For some of you, let me just sweetly say, schooling your children can be set aside so that you can gain Christ. I appreciate the diligence of my wife and many of you, but some of you need to know there is something more important. It's the Mary and Martha principle. It's not that schooling and housekeeping, and and for many of you, it's going to work. It's not that that's a bad thing, but don't tell me that that is of greater importance than gaining Christ, whom you need in order to be what you should be in the workplace and in the home. Jesus here is saying we must start denying ourselves to be awakened to what following Jesus really means. It's the cost of discipleship. Are you willing to deny self, sacrifice self, and surrender self in order to love Christ, live for Christ, and gain Christ. And that's now in this week. And, and ultimately Jesus saying this is eternally. Because whoever, whoever loves his life in this world loses it. That's Jesus' point. You cannot be my disciple. You can have your own life, but you cannot have eternal life. Or you can have Christ who promises eternal life, but it may cost you something in this life. Self-denial is the cost of discipleship. Adniram Judson spent 40 years as a missionary in Burma. Now this goes back to the 1800s. 1812, he began his 40-year ministry in Burma. The year before he went, he wanted to get married. So he wrote a letter to the girl's dad asking permission to marry her. But it's unlike any any proposal or conversation with the potential father-in-law that we've probably ever heard. We have the letter. It's in the book to the Golden Shore, the biography of Adoniram Judson. He said, I have to ask now whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps to a violent death, can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left heaven's home and died for her and for you? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world to come with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from the heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? It's a cost of discipleship. The dad said, sure, but I'll leave the decision to her. She wrote this to a friend. I feel willing and expect to spend my days in this life in heathen lands. I've come to the determination to give up all comforts and enjoyments here, to sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. So at 25, she sailed on a ship to India and then Burma. She bore three children, none of them lived to be three years old, and she died at 37 in broken health. But in joy, she had spent her life for her Savior. That's, I think, what Jesus says is the norm. You don't have to live in Burma to live that life. You don't have to sail overseas and be a missionary to live that life. But look again this week at Luke 14. And hear Jesus saying, enough with the the mediocre, casual approach to the Christian life. Realize that there is a gloriously high expectation. But by His grace, a glorious possibility that you can live this life. In full abandon to this world for the glory of God. And in so doing, inspire your wife and your kids to live this kind of life. John the Baptist said it well He, Jesus, must increase, and I must decrease. Self denial is the cost of following Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Teach us self-denial. By your Spirit's work in us, bring about that temperance that is evident in our yielding to your good and perfect will. May we taste the joy of losing our lives for the sake of the gospel this week. For the sake of the gospel being demonstrated in our homes to our spouses and to our children, for the sake of the gospel being seen in our lives, in the workplace, in the marketplace. Help us to lose something this week for your name's sake. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, whom we await. Amen.